0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We all know the story of Palm Sunday and are familiar with the story, and of course, the story continues on that Jesus does get the colt of the donkey, and he does ride it, and the crowds uh, welcome Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. Um, uh, we know, looking back, and as we see it in the context of the Gospels, we know and understand that that this was Jesus' triumphal entry, that he was the Messiah, and that he entered the city as as a king. Uh, that it was. In fulfillment of prophecy, That wasn't just a random event that Jesus and all the gospel writers uh, state clearly that this was in fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, but it's an interesting prophecy and it's an interesting event. And if we step back from our familiarity with it a little, <coughs> uh, it's a strange story and it, it ought to make us ask some questions. Um What kind of a king is this that rides in on a donkey? And not just on a donkey, but on the colt of a donkey. What is that about? And, of course, in our culture and context, we would give it one meaning. But a more important question is really to ask, what would it have meant to the people of Israel? And what's significant is that it did mean something to them. Uh, They uh, welcomed in Jesus. They gathered. They lined the road, entering up into Jerusalem. And there was clearly something significant to them about this event. And so the question to ask is, what, what did it mean to them? And we want to look at that today. And to do that, we actually want to jump back into the Old Testament and look at the prophecy that's quoted here. Because it's a prophecy that the Jewish people would have known well. And clearly they were tuned into as these events unfolded. So, that when Jesus came riding on this colt, it meant something to them. So, we want to look this morning and see what exactly it, it, um, it meant to them and help us hopefully understand a little bit more of what Palm Sunday means and what Jesus' triumphal, un, triumphal entry uh, means. Uh, along with that, uh, it's clear that whatever it meant to them, they saw it as a moment and an opportunity to celebrate, to rejoice. And thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people lined the streets as Jesus rode in. They threw down their palm branches and their coats and they hailed him. Hosanna. And they rejoiced and they worshiped and they celebrated. Uh, How good are you at celebrating things? Uh, Especially how good are you at celebrating Jesus? Uh, When I think about this question, I have to be really honest and tell you that for me personally, I'm not really great at celebrating things. Um, and I have several excuses. (laughs) Partly, I think it's my genetics, right? I come from mostly British and Scottish stock. If anybody's from Britain or Scotland, I'll probably insult you with this, but British people are really not known for being, like, out there, right? Like, you know, you get Latinos or, you know, Central American people, very enthusiastic. And then there's the British, right? I mean, it's a sign when, like, the most excited they get is to say bravo bravo right okay that's my genes that's my gene pool that i'm working with here you know so that could be part of the problem uh, on top of that i grew up in a history i have a history of culture a personal culture of my my time and my era my family where you you know sane normal people kept their emotions in, in check And, like, really emotional people were were basically very unstable people on the verge of, like, a mental hospital. And so, you know, real people keep their emotions in check, right? And that's what I was ingrained with learning up. You don't laugh. You don't cry. You really don't cry, right? Um, So celebrating involves neither of those. You can't laugh. You can't cry. You just are very stoic. That's celebrating. I am celebrating. I am happy. Right? Can't you tell? That that was my culture. That was my background. Maybe yours, too. On top of that, so I got this genetic thing. I got this culture thing. And on top of that, I got saved in a church that, um, you know, was very, we'll put it this way. I grew up in a church that saw the great enemy of the faith being the Pentecostal church, right? Because these are like all emotionally unstable, crazy people who really all should be locked up, who obviously never read the Bible, Right? Of course, I, since then, I've learned that that's not true. But my early understanding of Christianity and of the faith was that Pentecostals, those people never read Scripture, and they were all emotional because they didn't read the Bible. And if they had really known the truth, they would be much, much less enthusiastic. And so, um, and they would be like me, right? Serious, serious. So... Uh, which just, just so you know, I mean, now I have some very dear friends. I mean, I, I embrace, and I think the charismatic church has a lot to teach and offer us because they know how to celebrate uh, and and get excited about the good news, right? But that's not the culture I grew up with, and I I think maybe you can relate to that. I mean, a lot of the uh, the Western Church, uh, in certain forms of it, uh, don't seem to do very a very good job, honestly celebrating uh, Jesus. And so as we look through this passage, I hope uh, for one it will help us understand uh, what's going on and and why uh, why the Jews responded the way they did, but also through it to uh, think through how we can better celebrate Christ. So let's jump actually back to the Old Testament to Zechariah chapter 9. If you want to turn in your Bibles there. And uh, we'll start by reading uh, verses 1 through 7 of Zechariah chapter 9, which is the context leading right up to the the passage that's quoted by all the gospel writers that we just read. Right. So this gives a little bit of the context or background. Uh, and I'm, I'm just reading selected portions of it because, as is true with all the prophets, they're kind of confusing. And they use a lot of terms and language that's scary and confusing. So I've just picked out a few tidbits to, of this passage. Let's read. It says this is the message of the Lord against the land of Aram and the city of Damascus. For the eyes of humanity, including all the tribes of Israel, are on the Lord. Doom is certain for Hamath near Damascus and for the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Though they are so clever, the Lord will strip away Tyre's possessions and hurl its fortifications into the sea and it will be burned to the ground. Gaza will shake with terror, as will Ekron, for their hopes will be dashed. Foreigners will occupy the city of Ashdod, and I will destroy the pride of the Philistines. It it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Now, uh, unless you've studied some of the Old Testament or are pretty good with Old Testament history, when you read through this, I mean, even when I read through it, and I kind of, I have a pretty good grasp on the Old Testament. I read through it. I'm going, wow, I just don't understand what all this is saying, right? It's pretty confusing. Um, where are all these places? What is the land of Aram and Hamath and Tyre and Gaza and Ekron? Probably not places you could pinpoint on a map, right? If you can, you should be teaching Old Testament somewhere, right? Because it's pretty specific information. Um, it sounds kind of bad. They use a lot of words like doom, hurled into the sea, terror. Uh, hopes dashed, okay this is not exactly a happy passage at the same time uh, I'm not sure if it's all bad because it talks about a remnant and from what I know about the Old Testament I think a remnant is a good thing um, it says Ekron is like the Jebusites, I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing, right I, I'm pretty sure I don't want to be like a Jebusite but I'm not sure why Right? Um, so what does this mean what is all this confusing language Well, what is being described here is God's conquest of this region. When did Zechariah write? Well, Zechariah was a prophet who wrote after the Babylonian captivity, after the exile. So as you know, uh, Babylon came, they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed every remnant of the people in Israel. They drug them all off as captives. Uh, the rest they killed, they burned and destroyed everything. The Israelites were in captivity for 70 years and after 70 years, uh, King Cyrus uh, of the Persian Empire allowed them to return in 538 BC. But they returned to a wrecked country. They returned to a city, Jerusalem that was wrecked and uninhabited right So Zechariah shows up with a bunch of other guys and uh, it's not exactly it's a little bit happy because they've been, They've been set free. They've been able to return to their homeland, but their homeland is a disaster. And on top of that, they, as a nation, are no longer anything. They're not. They're, they're not a. They're not a nation at all. They're a little band of people struggling to survive. And if you know much about this this region and the history of it, um, <coughs> not being a powerful nation was a dangerous thing, because this is how it had been. Uh, Early on, the Assyrians had come in and, and, and destroyed the northern kingdom of, of Israel. Uh, later, the Babylonians came and destroyed the Assyrians, right? Then the Medes came and destroyed the Babylonians. Then the Persians came and destroyed the Medes. And it wouldn't be long before the Greeks would come and destroy the Persians, right? Uh, in the middle of all of those destroying is who? Israel, right? And they cannot help but get caught in the crossfire. So picture this. You've just been returned to this country. That's a wasteland. There's you and a handful of people trying to rebuild this city. And you know that all around you are these huge countries that can wipe you out. And anytime there's a change in power, right, they don't just wipe out the Medes or the Persians or the Babylonians. They wipe out everybody, right? So it's a scary time. And there's a lot of hopelessness among the Israelites because they know how long is it going to be before the next wave of destruction comes. And, you know, we're trying to rebuild the city. But what happens when the next invaders come and destroy it all and kill us and drag us off into yet another captivity? Well, in light of all that, Zechariah gets a word from God and God encourages the Israelites not to worry that someday God is going to fix things. And he's going to do it this way. And, and the way it worked, all these invading armies seem to always come from the north. They came from the north. And uh, uh, and he describes this this invasion from the north. And so these cities of Hamath and Aram start in the north. In fact, they're, they're areas that were never part of Israel, even beyond the kingdom of, da- of David and Solomon. And God comes and he starts there in the north and he starts... Conquering, right? So he conquers Damascus and Haram. And he moves down to a little farther south to uh, the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And he keeps moving down and then he names a bunch of other cities, Ekron and Gaza and, and Gath. Right? Those are all cities of the kingdom of, of the Philistines. They're Philistine strongholds that would be on the southern coast of Israel. So there's this picture of God marching his army just as the Assyrians had, just as the Babylonians had. God marching down, conquering these people and taking over the land again. And finally, uh, (coughs) it ends in verse 8 when it says, Then I speak, God speaking, then I will camp out at my house as a guard, so that no one shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall ever again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. So this is a picture. God comes down and he's destroying all of these enemies and all of those people all around Israel that had been a problem forever. And finally, he gets to Jerusalem and he sets up his permanent camp there. And he says, from now on, nobody's going to march back and forth, right? Because this is what happened. You know, the armies would march through. They would kill. They would destroy. They would burn everything on their way to Egypt. Then on the way back from Egypt, they'd kill and burn and destroy everything. And and this is kind of the thing. Uh, Israel was just constantly being marched back and forth by these invading armies. He says, no more will that happen. Because I will set my camp up and I will guard Jerusalem and Israel. And I will make sure it is a safe place. I will watch it with my own eyes. Now, if you're in exile, uh, I mean, if you're one of these Israelis coming back from exile in this broken down city, this would be a pretty encouraging word, right? This would be a little glimmer of hope for them. Uh, and so that's the context behind our uh, our passage that we're looking at. And so then verse 9 says this. <clears throat> uh, the, the context is, describes this great conquest. And then in verse 9 it says, Therefore rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So you get the picture. He set up his camp uh, at Jerusalem outside the gate. And now this victorious king is going to do what? Well, he's going to enter the city, right? And so the people gather. Imagine, and and someday this is future, uh, but partly fulfilled in Christ. We'll get to that in a minute. But imagine the scene, right? Imagine the scene. There's been this great conquest of every enemy. And this uh, conquering king has set up his camp at the gate. And now, in victory, he is going to come into the city, and be welcomed by those he is rescuing and saving. Right? This is a moment to celebrate. It is rejoicing. Right? Your king has come to you uh, in righteousness, bringing salvation. And it describes um, four uh, characteristics of this king. Uh, first, it says he is righteous. Right, So he does all things right towards man and towards God. Secondly, the, the ESV says, having salvation is he. Apparently, Yoda from Star Wars translated this verse of the Bible. Having salvation is he. What it means is, and why they couldn't just say that, it means he brings salvation. love the Yoda version, but uh, he brings salvation with him. As he comes in, he's bringing his salvation. Uh, He's conquered his enemy. And for the Jews, they would have understood it in terms of Saving them from their enemies, as we'll see in a minute, it has more meaning than that. He is humble, and he's not like the conquering kings who had been harassing them uh, for centuries, who were arrogant and proud and came uh, in all their power to dominate and to crush. This king comes humbly, humbly, right? And then we come to this phrase that, um, that defines Palm Sunday, uh, he comes riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Very repetitive. Uh, it emphasizes the point. He comes riding on a donkey, and not just any donkey, but actually the colt, the foal of a donkey. What does that mean? Uh, uh, well, you know, and and what would we expect? Well. We, we would probably think or expect the king, this conquering king, to come on a, on a horse. Uh, but in our thinking, because we don't really live in that time, we may think of it for different reasons, right? Because for us, a horse is just bigger and more impressive, right? A donkey seems kind of silly. Uh, and, you know, to, to use the analogy, it's kind of like, you know, the modern version of this. We Behold your king riding on a Honda dream. <laughs> Ooh, yay. This kind of doesn't impress, right? Um, when it should be riding in on a Harley. <laughs> right, you know. Yeah, so I like that. <laughs> well, the Jews may... That's kind of how we read it. Partly true, but it doesn't quite capture what they would have understood. So let's think about how they would have seen this. The, the deal is this. And in, there's, there's plenty of examples in Scripture of kings riding on donkeys. In fact, David uh, rode on a donkey. There's there's events that, And it wasn't quite like a haunted dream, right? Um, But the difference is this. Uh, The difference between a donkey and a horse is this. A horse was uh, a weapon for war, right? It wasn't just bigger or faster or stronger. It was something that gave you military advantage. And, in fact, if you were to have an army in this day, the, the, the horse would have been your primary weapon, because if you're out there standing with your stick and there's a horse charging at you with a guy on it with a big, bigger stick, right, you're going to lose. <clears throat> you're just going to lose because that horse will just trample you to pieces before you even can say boo, right? So the horse was a picture of great military force. So maybe the modern translation would be, would be this. Um, you know, he comes driving his nice pickup truck. But we would expect him to become flying an F-16, right? Because kind of a pickup truck is to a donkey what an F-16 is to a horse in their day, right? The point is this: he does not come with military might. So he's conquered, but he is not conquered with the weapons of war. I mean, he's conquered differently. He's conquered. He comes on a on a donkey. He does not come and there's no description here of his army. He doesn't come with armament, with tanks, with chariots, with powerful weapons. He, he comes on a donkey and he conquers much differently, <coughs> not by high-tech weapons or military power. Um, and then it goes on to say that it describes his kingdom real briefly. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. So this... Not only does he not have a weapon, but he eliminates weapons across the world. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Because he comes bringing peace uh, to the world and he comes conquering uh, by speaking peace to the nations. Um, And. And there's actually two ways that he does this, the two ways that he conquers. It says, first of all, there's a lot, there is some destruction going on. He hurls stuff into the sea. He destroys things, right? He he brings destruction. But interestingly, it also says two other significant things. In verse one, it says that the eyes of men look to the Lord. Um, what does that mean? Well, the Old Testament, that phrase was a, was a description of somebody looking to God for salvation. And he describes it only of Israel, but he says, even the other nations look to the Lord. Right? Uh, he confirms that, that interpretation uh, at the end when he talks about the Philistines. And he says, he says, among the Philistines, remember the Philistines, who are the Philistines? Like David and Goliath, right? Long, long time enemies of Israel. But what does he say about the Philistines? Well, he says that there will be a remnant among them. What's a remnant? What's well, a, a leftover group of people who are faithful to God? And he says that Ekron will be like the Jebusites. What's Ekron? Well, Ekron is one of the cities of the Philistines. Who are the Jebusites? Well, the Jebusites were a people, not Israelites, a people conquered by David. But rather than destroying the Jebusites, what does David do? David spares them and he allows them to become integrated, incorporated as the people of Israel. So what what he's saying here is that God will conquer two ways. One, he will destroy some, but also he will convert his enemies and make them followers. Some will become neutralized because they will worship him. They will follow him and they will love him. And the result will be when this king comes and sets up his kingdom, there won't be a need for weapons because every people in every land and every place will live at peace with God and with each other. Right? So it's describing this perfect kingdom when God restores the world through this king, this Messiah. Now we know, uh, and, and the Jews would have seen this, and, and, uh, so was, and this is the context. So when they see Jesus riding in on a donkey's colt, they are thinking about this passage, right? They know this scripture. Why do they know it? Well, because ever since Zechariah wrote these things, uh, the Jewish people had been oppressed by every enemy. And in fact, the Greeks did come and wipe out the Persians, right? And in doing that, they wiped out Israel one more time. And they destroyed the temple again. Oh, they didn't completely destroy it. They just brought pigs in and worshipped and Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple horribly, right? And then, of course, uh, the Greeks didn't last long and who conquered them? Well, the Romans came, right? And so in Jesus' day, they still are an oppressed people. There are still enemies going to and fro across their land. They are looking for this king, right? They are longing for the day when this king will come and will make his camp at the gate of their city and he will ride in on this donkey and he will bring peace to them. So uh, you can see why the crowd is so excited. Uh, Jesus is fulfilling this messianic prophecy. Exactly. And they are excited because they see this as the coming of this king who will conquer. But of course we know that and by the way, the, all four gospel writers and Jesus himself make it plain that, yes, Jesus is, is directly fulfilling this prophecy, um, that he's coming as the king, the rescuer, the conqueror, who will bring his salvation with him. Now, the only problem with all that is that uh, it didn't work. Right? Jesus went into Jerusalem. He got really angry in the temple chased out the money changers. A week later, they killed him. It didn't seem to work. And we know, and of course the gospel writers also knew, that this prophecy would be fulfilled in stages. And it's interesting, they all quote verse 9, none of them quote verse 10, about his kingdom of peace reigning from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the the world. So they understood that Jesus was a coming king, but he would fulfill this prophecy in pieces, in stages. And stage one uh, was his first coming, but they and we look forward to his second coming when he will complete and fulfill what's prophesied here. Now, if that's the true, okay, so that's true. So you're a an, you're Jew, and, and, and as, as Grace shared, you know, you're, you're on this road to Jerusalem, you, you have your palm branch, and, and Jesus comes on the colt and the donkey, and you are celebrating, you're excited, and you, it's, it's, the, it's the Messiah, right? And you are excited, you are rejoicing, you are shouting Hosanna because deliverance has come. Uh, it seems like this is kind of a setup, right? I mean, it's like, talking about playing a cruel trick on somebody, right? This seems like a very cruel joke on the people of Israel, how could God do this? How could Jesus do this to them, right? Set them up with this hope that they've been longing for for hundreds of years. Just to say, oh, ha, just kidding. <laughs> you know, I'm coming, but not to do what you think. Ha, joke's on you. Well, if that were all there were to it, it would be a cruel joke, right? But the reality is Zechariah's prophecy doesn't end here, right? The problem with Israel wasn't that they misunderstood this prophecy. It's says they didn't read the rest of the story, right? They stopped reading too soon. And if they had read the rest of Zechariah's prophecy, they would have known what was coming. So let's do that. Let's look and let's read uh, and look on at his prophecy. Um, He says... And I will pour out, this is from chapter 12, I've skipped a bunch of Zechariah, but reading ahead. Chapter 12, verses 10 and 13, 1. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Th- verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Um, they didn't read far enough, so let's, let's see what this says. First of all, it says that God will one day pour out on them, speaking of Israel specifically, a spirit of grace and the pleading for mercy. What does that mean? Well, it means that God will change the hearts of, of the people of Israel specifically and will change the way that they understand they come to Him. And they will come to Him on the basis of grace. Right? No longer will they feel that they have come to him on the basis of their own righteousness or merit. Rather, they will realize and recognize the need for an, uh, to receive from God his unmerited favor. Um, this gets pictured in so many great ways, but grace is ultimately getting something that you absolutely know you don't deserve. Right? Getting kindness from someone when what you really deserve is condemnation. And God says, one day, the Jews, Israel, will understand that they must come to me in grace. Now, clearly, in Jesus' day, that was not the case. The majority of, of Israel in Jesus' time and in the New Testament time did not understand grace. And, in fact, they scoffed at it, right? And they rejected God's offer of grace, uh, there's a second part to it, though. He says also that there will be a spirit of pleading for mercy. And it's the idea that not only does God offer grace, but there's a sense that we must come humbly before Him and we must beg for God to receive us through mercy. Um, and then He goes on to explain why. He says, when when we look at, so that so that um, when they look on me. On whom they have pierced, they will mourn as one mourns for a lost child. Um, So what will happen? Well, What he's describing here is that one day Israel will understand, uh, because they will see, they will look on Jesus, and they will see him as the one that they pierced. And they will understand that it was they who crucified him. Um, that it was it was him who died for them. It's interesting, the rabbis, uh, and even many New Testament scholars, wrestle with interpreting this verse. Because clearly here, God is talking. And he changes, there's a change in person. He says, um, when they look on me, okay, God's talking, when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced. Right? Uh, now, there's, there's a problem there, because... Pierced in this context currently means killed. Okay, we're not talking about getting your ear pierced or your nose pierced. Okay, this is not about like, you know, Jesus got real hip. God got hip and got piercings. Okay, uh, this means like pierced with a sword, killed, run through with a spear. Okay, that's what it's picturing here is death. Uh, how could God be pierced? Well, the Jews they don't know what to do with this one, right? Um, it's clearly though. And the obvious, easy uh, interpretation is that God's talking about himself. Because when we see what Jesus did, it all makes sense. God, come in human flesh, was pierced for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. Jesus came bringing salvation. But the salvation he brought was not the salvation they first expected. It was a salvation from sin and from death, not from political enemies. Um, so the Jews would, would would see this someday, and it would cause them great grief. Right, They would mourn. And he describes that the mourning would be like one who lost an only child. Um, a horrible kind of mourning and grief, and, and the, the passage goes on. I didn't quote it, but the rest of the verses talk about from from, from David's house to the house of the priest to the lowliest person in Israel will mourn and grieve because they realize who Jesus was. Right? Um, and and through that, right? So so we link that with the verse before the passage before. That's why they plead for mercy, right? That's why they recognize, God, we have wronged you horribly. The only hope we have is what? Your grace. Because we killed the one you sent to us. Our only chance is to plead for your mercy. Uh, but the good news is when they come to that place, it says in verse 13, 1, they God will open up a fountain and on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. When they finally come to that place uh, the blood of Christ will be like a fountain that will flow over them and cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And they will find forgiveness and salvation. Uh, it's, It's unfortunate that that the Jews didn't read the rest of Zechariah because they would have understood what Jesus' mission in life was about. They would have known that he came as a king, but that he also came to be pierced and wounded for our sin and transgressions. Um, and that it was all part of God's plan in sending him to this earth. So what does this tell us about celebrating Christ? Uh Let's kind of wrap this up into a couple of thoughts. Uh, First of all, we are to rejoice in in Christ. Um, A great word to describe this is to exalt in him. And exalting is not a word we use often anymore, which is too bad. But it's the idea of being joyfully jubilant that you won, right? Now, um, have any of you ever won at something? Anybody? You're all losers. Somebody? Has somebody won something? Okay, a couple of you. The rest of you, that's sad, right? Uh, I'm kind of like that myself. Never really won much, right? Um, so, so, so since we're all losers, what we do is we, 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 we root for sports teams, right? Because we never win, so we hope our team does. Okay, any of you had your team win? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, a few more of you. Okay, yay for those Canadian hockey teams. They win rough riders. Okay. Um, when, when they win, how do you feel? Right? When you win, how do you feel? It's exciting. There is joy. Right? And here's the principle. Here's something to think about. We are to rejoice in Christ. We are to celebrate the conquering victorious king. Right? And celebrate all that he's brought. But here's the principle. Um, who will exalt or celebrate more? The person who thinks they're going to win and wins or the team that has no shot at all of winning and wins. Who celebrates more? Well, the underdog, right? The underdog. Like I said, I never won much. Probably really never won anything, if I think about it. But I came close to winning once and actually got a trophy, right? And it was this, I was a runner in high school and not a very good runner, uh, And this is how it was for me. Like in track, I would run the two mile, which is eight laps around the track, right? Eight. I can't even count that far. You know, you get up there, it's like you don't know. But I would know when I was getting close to the end of the race when I would get lapped by the guys in the front. (laughs) That meant the end was near, at least for them, right? That's how bad it was. So one day um, we had this fun run. It wasn't a high school event, it was just a run with our team. We went up. I ran this race. The race started at 9,000 feet and ended at 14,000 feet. Why would you do that? I don't know. 14 miles long, right? And uh, I start off running, and um, I actually beat all my other teammates. And and you didn't get a trophy. There was, like, no first-place trophy. But if you did it under an hour and 30 minutes, you got a trophy. And I did it. I came in under an hour and 30 minutes, the only guy on my whole team. And I won something, right? And to this day, that's, like, one of the happiest... Memories, because it's like the only one, of me actually winning something, right? And it's, it's a happy thought. Right? It's, it's exciting, right? It felt good, right? Well, it felt like throwing up. But after that, it felt really good, right? When we, uh, if we want to really celebrate Christ, right? If we want to really worship and rejoice in what Christ has done, right? Before we do that... It's not enough just to celebrate the triumph of Jesus. Uh, this this prophecy in this passage helps us understand the process of celebrating. You see, before we can have great victory in triumph, we've got to experience the pain of loss. right? So for the people of Israel, at this time when Zechariah wrote this, and also at the time when Jesus came, they were an oppressed death. Beaten people, right? Nobody would have said of Israel in these days, you know, hey, watch out, Rome. You know, watch for us. We're on the rise, right? Look out. Nobody would have said that about Israel at either of these time periods. They were were not a threat to anybody. They were beaten people. They were losers. And they knew it, right? So for them to have this thought of a king who would come, who would save them and give them victory... Wow, right? There is rejoicing in that. So what does that mean for us? Well, we will rejoice, I think, best and most when we do what the second half of the prophecy talks about, right? When we look on him whom we have pierced. Because the reality is it wasn't just the Jews who put Jesus on the cross, right? It was not them alone who pierced him. It was you and I. right? And what the Easter season is about, what, what, what we want to do, especially this week, but all the time, we need to be looking at Jesus on the cross and realizing uh, with grief and with mourning and with sadness the cost of salvation. Right, um, And I think there's two ways we can do that. First, and these are two things that the church has done throughout history, but it's done it better in the past than in the present. And I think we have lost something because we've lost this discipline. And the first one is to reflect much on the cross. You know, back in the old days, a thousand years ago, uh, people would carry around crucifixes, you know, little crosses with Jesus on it. Um, why did they do that? Well, you know, we say, well, it's all bad theology because Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. And da, da, da. But the reality is that they didn't do it because they believed Jesus was still on the cross. They did it to help them do this, to remember the one whom they pierced. And it was part of the custom or tradition or devotional life of believers back then to spend a lot of time looking at that crucifix and reflecting on the one that was pierced for them. To think through the suffering and the pain that Jesus endured so that we could be forgiven. Uh, We're going to sing this morning, I think, Oh Sacred Head. Uh, It's it's from a 300 verse poem where a guy was doing just that. As he looked at, at, at this crucifix, as he remembered the suffering of Christ, he wrote 300 verses. And it's actually broken down a whole section on his feet, on his hands, on his side, on his face, on his shoulder, going through each part of Jesus' body, meditating and contemplating the suffering of Jesus that brought about our forgiveness, right? Um, There is a place for that for us, right? To contemplate the cross and to remember the suffering of Christ and that it was indeed my sin that wounded him. He was pierced for my transgressions, right? So it's my pride that denied him like Peter. Uh, it is my greed that betrays him like Judas. It is my lies and hate that uh, that whip and beat him. Right? It is my craving and hunger for evil things. That pounded the nails into his hands and feet. It is my selfishness that drives the spear into his side. I think one of the reasons we don't rejoice very well is because we don't reflect very well on the devastating cost of sin.